Hi, you're listening to Manufactured, a podcast about sustainability and the making of fashion. I'm your host, Kim von der Weert, a student of human rights, turned garment factory manager, turned sustainable fashion critic. On this show, I talk to some of the most integral people who manufacture what we wear. They aren't the people you see in fashion magazines. They're the people behind closed doors working in fashion supply chains. This episode is part of a mini-series that explains how different fabrics are made. We're going back to basics and asking industry insiders questions like, what are the production processes behind different fabrics? Who are the players involved? What are their incentives? And more. Because it's hard to have a conversation about how to make a material better or how to make a garment better if we don't understand how it's made in the first place. Today, I'm talking to Marianne McLean Atkins, a textile designer and knitwear specialist with 20 years of global industry experience developing apparel from conception to finished garment. Marianne studied textile design in Scotland, where she specialized in knitwear. Within a year, she moved halfway across the world to Shanghai, bagging a position as designer and R&D manager at one of the biggest knitwear manufacturers in China. Over the next two decades, she gained diverse experience in the fashion supply chain, working closely with a range of different knitwear manufacturers throughout China. When COVID hit, Marianne decided to take a step back and go back to school. A master's degree in supply chain management, procurement, and logistics led her back to her passion, which was, and still is, knitwear. She worked on a dissertation discussing the value of merino wool growers and met a farmer in Australia who inspired her to champion the cause for wool. Marianne takes me on a deep dive into the various stages of the production of wool, starting from the very beginning. She now works as Sustainable Fashion Education Director at Redress in Hong Kong. Marianne, thank you so much for coming on the show. Let's dive right into the conversation and get started because we have a lot to cover. So let's talk about the farm because that really is the starting point for this supply chain, right? Could you give us some context? You know, where are most sheep for the wool industry raised? What are the key countries or maybe the percentage of the total market share? And actually, maybe you could also share what percentage of global apparel is made of wool? So... What stunned me was the fact that in terms of fiber, if I just give you the fiber percentage, it's only 1% for the global fiber market, which to me was really shocking. And I thought, surely it's 10. But cotton's 22, 24 maybe, because synthetics, it's the cheapest go-to. And so wool was kind of lost in this world of materials, I think it was losing its sense of identity. When I say wool, I want to specify I'm talking merino wool. Merino sheep is a breed that are made mainly based in Australia. They weren't originally from there. I think it was from Spain originally, but they've emigrated and evolved. And so farms can be, you know, small farms, family run farms, always family run, really. Um, They're passed down through generation and they could be 3000 sheep or 40,000 sheep. Huge, huge. Right. So there's a really wide variety, really wide scope. And they're all managed according to that family's rules. There's no big, you know, standardization um, trends that have happened over the years. I've certainly got to know that there's a lot of farmers that 
argue <laughs> with each other over what, how you should manage your farms and animal husbandry. And there's a lot of certifications in now that brands are looking at how to, they can control how they grow and manage their animals. There's a lot of disruption that goes on with growing this material. Well, actually, this is one of the things that I was thinking about as I was preparing for this conversation. And that is like, so you mentioned already that you're specifically talking about merino wool, but like, you know, it's an animal, right? And so surely an animal's fleece looks different depending on what it eats, what kind of terrain it's on, you know, what kind of operation it's raised in. And so one of my questions for you is like, does a farm raising sheep for wool look similar kind of no matter where you find it? And what I sort of take from what you've just shared is that, no, they look very different and that the operations and the setups of these farms vary widely. But then how do you basically end up with fleece that looks the same, you know, after it's dyed or produced? I mean, is there anything at the farm level that sort of impacts that? Yes. (laughs) Yes. It is the most diverse fiber. Everything you do to it will affect the end quality. So, So at the farm level, what are some of those things? The way that the animals are farmed will directly affect the quality. And so it can be anything from the food that they're giving, mainly the weather that is going to affect them. And in Australia, they never have the same weather pattern. It's unbelievable. And from north to the south can be completely different. So it's so unstable. It's really hard to manage the supply because if they have a drought year it'll affect how much fleece comes out and the animals can get harmed while they're in these weather conditions you know foot rot and then when they're in tropical conditions you know they get the blow flies and then there's so much turmoil that goes on while they're growing their fleece quite happily but the animal itself the amount of fleece that it grows, the amount of skin that it's got, the breed of the sheep, every single decision the farmer makes will affect the quality. And the thing is, it takes a long time. Like a ewe would typically have six years of her life, you know, and she'll be shorn six times. And in that fleece, you get six sweaters. That's mind boggling. (laughs) You can see why they have thousands of sheep. And, you know, then the animal could also be sold for meat and they produce milk. And there's lots of different tangents that go off, not just the fleece. Well, that was actually something I wanted to ask you about is like the mechanics. How do you shear a sheep? I've yet to try it. That's on my bucket list. I need to grow some muscles because it's a very physical job, very skilled. You'll never find softer hands than a shearer's hands because of all the lanolin coming off of the fleece is typically a man's job because of the physicalness that you have to hold and the care and attention not to cut the sheep while you're shearing at the speed. So there's a lot of pressure and there's a lot of money. So there is women coming into it, which is fantastic because that's a, you know, it's a very masculine environment. Paint me a picture. They have like a scissors in their hands? Shears. Shears. Yeah. So they'll have stations. There might be like six shearers in the shed and they'll have their stations and the sheep will come, be brought in and they will have certain positions that they put them in. They have to do it really quick because they don't want to distress the animal. So the better they are, the quicker they are and 
the more sheep they can get through because it's like it's time time is ticking but you have to take care of the sheep so they're very expensive these shearers and they're literally shearing off the fleece in one go and then off the happy sheep goes jumping around because she's just got rid of her coat and then they take the fleece onto the table it will be checked there'll be a lot of skirtings that could fall off all the edges and things that they Everything is used. And so they'll have a quick check for quality. They'll wrap it and bundle it. And that will be later on used to be classed according to what grade it is. I was actually just thinking, I mean, you mentioned there's a huge variety in types of farming operations, but what would be considered a large number of sheep to have versus a small number of sheep? A typical farm would be about 5,000 sheep. Are all sheep sheared at the same time of year? Same time, yeah. Yes, yes. And so all over the country, sheep are sheared. So you can imagine that, you know, the sheeters take to the road and they live on the farm where they're going to be operating. And that's another thing with the conditions, you know, like if you give the sheeters great conditions, they'll want to go to your farm and other farms might not get the sheeters in time. And so that fleece is forever growing on an uncomfortable animal. So they're independent. I mean, they're like, they're freelancers that are then brought in for this specific task at a specific moment in the year, but they live on the farm the whole year or? No, no. They come in as freelance. They usually have a team because they'll work with people that they, you know, they're they're really having to rely on each other. And so there would usually be a team of maybe five or six I'm not sure if that's an exact number, but typically. And they'll have their relationships and partnerships with key farms that they like to work with. So relationships are key. There's a lot of them that come over from New Zealand over to Australia. So when COVID hit, there was a huge problem of labour. There's not a lot of young people coming into this. And it is a bit of a young person's job because, you know, although you are still strong and fit in your 40s and 50s, it's going to hurt your back. There's only so long that you can do it. So there's a lack of talent coming through and there's a lack of innovation coming through to be able to take it away from the manual labor. But how does someone even learn this skill? Like, do you go to school to learn how to shear sheep? They've certainly got schools and they have grants and they really do try to bring young people in and they'll train them because you have to train alongside. So in that team, there probably would be someone coming up through the reins. And they would be doing all the horrible jobs first before they, they got clippers in their hands. And there'll be mistakes. That's the problem. There's You've kind of got to learn with the animal. How do you do that fast? Yeah, very high pressure, high stakes situation. How is a shearer paid? Like, are they paid per animal or per maybe to go like as fast as possible? Or You're right. It's like peacetime. It's how many sheep you can get through. And because they're shearing season, they're really like, they'll work as long and as hard as they can in the day because they're going to get their money that way. But also they're going to get more sheep that way and, and get to the next farm who are desperate for them. So what happens after that? The sheep has been shorn. Is it at that stage that the farmer then sells that fleece or is there other processing that happens to it before it leaves the farm? They'll still have the fleece in the shed and then it will be classed. So there's a classer that comes in and these are, again, very technical, experienced people. They will be a lot older, usually, and they see and they touch the fleece. 
That is how they classify it. There's so much technology now, but there's nothing that can beat their hands and their sight. And that's what they rely on. And also that person's experience and expertise. So still very manual. They'll look at the fleece to grade it. So these are also like independent people that the farmer then brings in to do this. Big farms would probably have people that would work with them because they wouldn't want to let go of a good classer. But yes, they would usually be independent as well because you don't have to do it all the time every day. So what makes a good class of wool? I mean, I know you said it's in the field, but can you describe what someone would be feeling for? If you ma- imagine like the crimp, so the crimp of the, the fibres, uh, the more crimp, the better, because then you're going to pull it out. It's going to come apart beautifully. So they'll tend to grab a piece and they'll start to pull the fibres. You want them to be long and you want them to be white and bright. And so they would class the fleece for the majority, the body of it. The, and then you've got the skirtings at the side. They'll all go for different They'll go into different entities and they will then go to auction. So you will get your fleece put into one, two, three and different grading. And that would reflect the cost that is going to be get taken to. Usually you will get class one, class two. They're going to be for next to skin. They're going to be much higher end luxury fibres. And when you get into more of the short, stumpy, dyed stuff that was near the breach. That was near the what, sorry? Near the breach. What does that mean? Near its bottom. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) All the nasties that are cleaned off, but they're going to be stained. And the fibres will be matted together. So there's a purpose, but it's probably going to be something like carpets, interiors, uh, insulation because the the fleece is still very good it's just that there'll be parts of it that you just don't even try (laughs) to go into garments so they'll declare that they'll declare how from that farm they'll have a stamp and they will put them into bales not so much in Australia because there's more sheep but recently I was at the British wool classing depot and it was really cool because there's a, maybe only 300 sheep in a farm and there's about 270 breeds in Britain. So there was, it was like going to the hairdresser and seeing all this hair. Everything was slightly different brown, slightly different. There was so many and it was fantastic. And so when you're dealing with that, they put that into the hands of the experts. And so it take, it's taken off farm. And that is a point where the farm do not see it again. The farmers that say, I've done my job. So on the classing though, because this is like a critical moment, both, I mean, you said it already in terms of the price, in terms of like later down the line that it gets used for stuff that's, you know, sort of fit for purpose. So is there ever any like disagreement at this stage? Because it seems like such a subjective, like it's an art, not a science, right? You're absolutely right. And there would have been back in the day but now they send to testing. So they are the major word that I'm missing out on is the micron of the fiber. So the micron of the fiber is the thickness. And so when they send it off to the main testing center, they would have the fleece tested for the micron. And the micron is going to give you arguably 
where it's graded. So the grading will give you pretty much 80% of like, yeah, it's definitely grade one, it's definitely grade two. Well, no, that's that's gonna that's the we're gonna put that in the skirting box. So when they go and get it tested, then they'll be able to really see where it should lie in terms of when it goes to auction, in terms of price. And so it gives it much more fairness. So it's done by people in the first instance, and then it's, is it kind of like then a spot check by laboratories? Yeah, because with wool, you can never get the same quality over the one fleece. And that one fleece is not going to do the same job. It is all going to go into the mix eventually. So like you say, like, how does it get to a garment? Well, this is even still such an early stage that they're just trying to separate the grades and then they'll separate, you know, the, the finesse. So by testing it, you're able to just define, right, well, that is definitely high end. That is definitely middle. That is definitely low. And they'll just pluck part, like they'll just take a piece of fleece by their hands. That's the bit that goes for testing. So you can, it depends which part you picked. Generally, you'll pick the middle part, but it's not telling you the quality of the top left-hand corner part or, you know, where it was behind the ear or, you know, under the belly. And so because it's so unstable and it's so diverse, even in the one body, they kind of have to take a stab in the dark. And this is why it's so technical because it takes an expert's hand to get it through these stages. Um, Otherwise, it would never get there. It would just continually testing it. (laughs) Yeah. So it's gone for auction. The fleece has been graded. It's gone for auction. Can you describe, like, what are these auctions like? So the auction rooms, you can imagine this huge big room with boxes of, open boxes with wool, hundreds of boxes. And they've got all the criteria declared on them, which farm, and you know all the details and just so that when you're going in to the auction you get to go and have a look around like you know the antiques you get to go and look and you have a bit of a touch because you too have your own opinion and you too maybe have a, an idea of how that farmer treats their farm their animals and then you know you have a relationship there or your buyer has particularly said okay I want to have this amount of grade A this amount of grade C and because they're going to blend them, you know, there's a certain price point. So there's, this is where it sort of meets in between. It's not about the fleece anymore. It's about what it's going to be, what it's going to become. And so at auction, there'll be all the bidding. It's still manual, like shouting through the like other auctioneer, proper auctioneer. And now recently, and certainly in facilitated by COVID, they've been taking online, which is a bit scary for people who've never, they're they're so tactile. But buyers are generally overseas, but they have people on the ground that have been doing the work for them. Well, that's what I was going to ask. These people who are there to buy the wool, can you tell us a little bit about them? Definitely traders. Their job is to export that to their buyers who are in China. And who are their buyers? Are their buyers the spinners? Yarn spinners. Yarn spinners. Yeah, they're 85% likely to be Chinese yarn spinners because China is the biggest supplier of textiles and the most expertise in cleaning, scouring, preparing the raw material for yarn. So even though they have sheep here in China, it's 
not suitable. They don't class it as good enough as the raw material from Australia. But Australia don't have the facilities to clean and scour the wool there. That all has gone decades ago. So they have a very strong relationship, Australia and China, for trading, not just for merino sheep, for the fleece, but also, you know, wine and then for meat and things. But it's difficult because trade tensions can affect wool. So you're a trader. You're buying a bunch of wool that has been graded, but has more or less come right off the sheep. Then what needs to happen to it? So the exporters will take risk because they will buy the material. Hopefully it will sell. If it doesn't sell, they have to put it in the warehouse, which they have to manage. That's a trouble because it might be months years and save it for next year or whenever there's somebody ready to buy it and that is a little gold nugget of wool is that it will last but you don't want to sit it in a warehouse rotting it keeps its value but then your warehouse costs you money yeah exactly right keeping a warehouse has costs exactly so you want to get it out overseas and get it in to be cleaned and scoured and that'll be the traders and exporters to do that and they handle all the logistics the insurance and they'll probably be partnered up with their spinners in China. I was going to ask so is it the spinners who do this degreasing or is it a like company specialized in degreasing? Yeah, company specialized in degreasing but they'll not be it's not like a vertical setup where you clean it in one part and then you spin it in another. They're completely separate. So it'll be going to the cleaning facilities first but they will be the ones that will then pass it on to the spinners. And I did see a scouting unit in the UK and it was amazing because it's just hot and spin. What is this word to scour or degrease? What does that actually mean? Yeah, to basically clean it. But how do you do that? Hot water? Hot water and chemicals. That is the dirty part of wool. You do have to use chemicals to get off all of the, you have to bleach it basically. Oh, because are you taking the color out too at this stage? Yeah, you're taking the color out so that you can start fresh. Oh. Like a clean palette. Yeah. So the better your animal is taken care of, the cleaner the fleece, the less scouring that's needed. Mm. So scouring is about taking the grease out, but also taking the color out. But does this process sort of like kind of strip all of that away to result in like a, something that looks very and feels very uniform? It won't affect the length of the fiber or, you know, where you're like, if it was classed as a top fiber, it'll stay as a top fiber. But yes, it's all about unpacking it, taking out all the grease. Well, I should say lanolin because it's specific to the shape and the the crap, the, the, the urine, the, the twigs, the leaves, the stones. I mean, when I saw the scouring unit, I couldn't believe the dirt that came out of it. I mean, it was like piles of dirt. It was it was amazing, but it would go through these, what can I say, like rollers and baths that was in one great big long machine, but it was always at a hot temperature. And, you know, wool, you don't ever wash at a hot temperature, but it, this is the only stage where you need it because you have to get this grease out. And it comes out the end with a much brighter, more controlled looking material you know, to visualize that rather than just one lumpy mess. I mean, if you've got browns mixed with creams, you're never going to make them all cream. You're not bleaching them out to the stage where they're 
all the same. They still have their characters in it, but you are removing all the dirt and the, all of the natural happenings that went on. So they're still like, you're sort of stripping back some of the differences, like you're bleaching, but it's even once it comes out of that, there's still going to be variation. Is that fair? Yes, there's still be variation. So you would never be able to spin from that. You still have to go through the dyeing process. Okay, so let's talk about that. <laughs> so that's when it leaves the scourers and then you're going to be in charge of the yarn spinners. And that's when they start to form a yarn and it will be teased and carded and combed. And again, that's starting to regulate the yarn. They're starting to put it through all of this process that gets it finer and finer and longer and leaner. And then at that stage, you start to formulate it into a fiber. If you imagine your wool at the beginning of the machine, and it's just a big piece of cotton wool, you know, like if you take your makeup off or if you're going to... Oh, I see. Like a cotton ball. Like a cotton ball. Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Not actual wool, cotton wool. And so it's all merged together. And in order to get the most out of that, you have to tease it through. So like you're brushing your hair and it goes through all these teasels and they do it again and again and again until you start to get these sheets of very thin layers of fibers. And it almost looks like when you're going to do felting, you know, when you're doing crafts. And at this stage, you can then start to blend your colors. You can blend different fibers. At this stage, you're still, you still can play with it. It's, it's really just still a fiber. It's not a yarn yet. And so you can mix colors and they'll all be loosely done and you can put them all in together. Like you can just, if you want to have a gray, a gray melange, which maybe has four tones, you will put into the machine black, charcoal, white, and maybe a very light gray in order to get that depth of color. Or you could do fancy yarns and you'll have a red and a purple and a yellow and an orange, you know, for tweed effects. There's so many things you can do at that stage, but that is before it's a yarn in order to get through the machine and blend it again, like tease it again and mix. So before you even spin, like, I don't know what a good analogy is, but it's like, I'm almost thinking of like a recipe. It's like before you even spin, you maybe need to have all of your ingredients and ingredients here is all wool, but like maybe different types of colors or shades or whatever. And you put them together so that then afterwards you can spin them into a single yarn. Is that a fair interpretation? <laughs> yeah. Like if you're making pasta, you got to make the dough and you got to blend it, blend it and get it to the right consistency before you can right. put it through the next process, which is thinner and thinner and thinner. And that's what these machines do. But I want to actually clarify something. Is what you're saying that actually they've already been dyed? Like the wool? Yeah, so you can dye solid colors because the next stages you'll be using that to mix in to make a melange effect. What do you mean solid colors? What's a not solid color? Like a solid color, black. Like if you don't want any depth and you want pure black mm -hmm. or if you want it to be bright white, mm -hmm. then you wouldn't have a mix of colors. You would just be dyeing that color completely okay and for black you might have to dye it twice in order to get the depth the solidness um but wool typically would want to have a melange effect because by dyeing it a heavy solid color apart from navy and black which are quite traditional it's it changes the texture and the appearance a little bit when it's too flat 
And the beauty of wool is because it is one of those materials that you can blend to encourage more and more colours and more and more depth than, let's say, an acrylic or something. So are you saying, like, let's say take green. You dye, like, several shades of green and then you're blending them together to get the green that in the end you want. Is that what? Yes. Okay. What is the, like, dyeing process? Can you describe what that looks like? I mean, is it putting, like, I'm imagining huge... Huge green vats. Yeah. Yeah. Factories that are, they have sample vats, you know, that will do maybe 20 pounds for sample yarn. And then they'll have their vats that are, this is why yarn usually has a minimum. Like a minimum order quantity. A minimum order quantity, yes. So when you go into the dyeing facilities, and there was one time I saw like hundreds of plastic bags, like shopping bags. And I said, what's that? over there and they said oh sample colors you know and they have specific areas because it's a different process to do a small 20 pounds of yarn than the control and consistency and ingredients and chemicals that you need for 200 pounds 2000 pounds of yarn because then you're going to have the control if you do 20 pounds of sample yarn and you know you're trying your best to get that beautiful heritage green that you need And then the brand's like, it's just not right. It's really hard to get the production quality when you're working with small scale. This is an interesting point I want to ask you about because you say, okay, the spinning company that is trying to get the right color, doing their blending, you said they're in communication with the brand who's saying, yeah, that's the right color or no, it's not the right color. But when you say brand, do you mean the brands and retailers that the end consumer shops from? Or do you mean the company that's going to do the weaving? Who is the spinner's customer financially? But then who is the spinner's customer in terms of like dictating the quality and the color and things like that? Are those the same entity or are those different? Well, a yarn spinner could have both. They can talk directly to the brand who is ordering their yarn and they will then specify who is their designer. So if you've got a yarn company that are doing a color card, let's say the very established yarn company, they have their own color card, you know, they're they're very well established. They will work directly with brands overseas, export business, and let's say Ralph Lauren, for example. And the designers there will work with the yarn company to create their collection of colors because they usually will have a key color that they have to get that's special for Ralph Lauren. They will then tell the knitter or the weaver, this is the yarn company that's doing our colors. And they will work in a triangle and a partnership. And there'll be quite established partnership. And then once the buyers have said, like signed off the colors, it's up to the knitters or the weavers to work with the yarn company to get lead times and capacity and everything that they need because they're waiting for the how many garments at the end of the day. And probably to finance the actual purchase, and right? To finance, yeah. Yeah, because these it's a long lead time, 45 days for spinning a new yarn, 45 days lead time. Yeah, so, okay, so you have sort of like a group of actors who are working together to decide the quality, but the commercial relationship is between the spinner and the knitter or the weaver or whoever is sort of coming next in the production process, depending on how these companies are structured and organized. 
That's right. So we kind of left off on you had painted this picture of like brushing out to get like a piece of felt. At that point, it's been dyed, uh, the color has been approved, the blending has been sorted, and you're left and you're stretching out the fiber. What happens after that? So in that blend, you can also blend different materials. By different materials, you mean like if you wanted to add synthetics or something to the mix, that's when you would do it? Yes, because wool is expensive and there's a lot of people that want part of wool, but they might combine it with other natural materials like cotton or mohair or, you know, even something that is going to be more modern like tensile, you know, where they're trying to get materials that are still talking sustainability. But there's a lot of blending going on in order to meet more diverse costing. And to be a lot more attractive with other materials, a lot more modern and to be able to maybe be more washable, you know, if there's less wool. But so there's a lot of different fancy yarns that go on and a real like real mix of blending across the table. But once you blend, because after that stage, once you've teased them and, you know, combined them all together, you will then extract them and they'll go through rollers and they'll be spun thinner and thinner and thinner in these huge big rooms that that have the cones on the end as they get thinner and thinner. And that's it. They're as one yarn. So once your product has been knitted or woven, the blending cannot unblend. That's a problem for end of life. So then we've kind of alluded to this already, but you have then a finished yarn and that is then being sold to a knitter or a weaver. Is that a fair assumption? (laughs) Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so can you maybe just describe how does the yarn, the wool yarn, get knitted or woven into a fabric? And I'm curious, especially, you know, are that you sort of started to allude to this already, but are the machines used to knit or to weave wool yarns the same as yarns made out of other materials? Or is it a completely different, completely different process? And maybe actually this brings up another question. Are spinners that are spinning the wool, are they companies that would typically only be working with wool or also other materials? Like is the machinery and equipment that they're using unique to wool or? Yeah, good question. So staying on the yarn side, typically a yarn spinner will work with the same type of materials. So if you're used to dealing with wool, you're going to be known and reputable as a wool spinner. You will blend, you will have other materials, but your reputation on wool is very valuable because people will know you as having very skilled technicians and that you, you're dealing with a difficult fiber. And also when it comes to dyeing wool and to spinning wool, you can't just switch to another material. You can't just switch to cotton. Can you describe what this knitting machine looks like? Because people might be imagining like their grandmother with knitting needles. Yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> I started, it used to be, machines that they would use by hand and they'd go left to right, left to right, left to right. And, you know, you'd see seas of people in China working in factories with these called V-bed machines and back and forward and the garment would come through these. It's called a V-bed because they'd have front needles and back needles and in the middle there would be this knitting going on. So move on from that very quickly. It's now auto machines. So there's the Shimaseki Japanese machines and then you've got Stoll German machines. They're the biggest in the market and they are all automatic machines and they can pretty much knit anything. 
When you say anything, what's the like output that comes out of a knitting machine? It's in panels. So front, a back, and two sleeves. Then you do the trims, and then it all gets linked together. Okay. That's your kind of fundamental garment. And of course, if you've got a dress or a trouser or something, that's for your fully fashioned knitwear. So I should specify. So there's different sections. So fully fashioned knitwear is knitted to shape. Your weaving has also gone automated now. It's not like the old weaving looms as such, although some craft people are going back that way. Can you just explain the difference between knit and woven? Yes. Knit is one continuous stitch from start to finish. And woven is up and down, called a warp, which has, you know, continuous strands up and down. And you will weave something left and right to go through it, like up and down, up and down, up and down. And it connects. So you can imagine weaving like a waffle Mm -hmm. and knit is like spaghetti. So it's like the way I imagine it, too, is it's like... If you think about woven fabrics, like that would maybe be used for not in wool necessarily, but like a dress shirt or maybe different kinds of trousers or pants that don't have the stretch. It's a much more sort of rigid yeah, yeah. type it's of more fabric. Compact. Yeah, yeah, outerwear, structured, tailored, absolutely. And that's why woven can be cut because if you cut knitwear, one strand, like if you have a hole in your sweater and you pull that, well, you're going to unravel the whole thing. Mm. Which, you know, as a woven, you can mend it. Yeah. And you can catch the end. So is the knitwear factory or the weaving facility, are these the companies that are selling then directly to the brands and the retailers that, you know, a consumer would know? Yes. Okay. Is there anything you want to say about the production side that we haven't covered? I didn't realize that how I worked wasn't how other designers worked. And I know how my yarn's made and I know the thickness it needs to be and the cost it needs to be and, and what needs to be done to change it at that yarn stage in order to help me with my final product and my customer's retail price. But for someone who's working on outerwear jackets or shoes or you know, someone who's just getting material for a t-shirt or dress, they're looking at swatch books. What I'm trying to say is you need to know. It doesn't matter that you didn't get taught it or, you know, that mm. you're, you're not associated or you don't, you're not able because they don't tell you. You have to find out because now we're sitting in a position where, you know, these natural resources are disappearing and we're in a real opportunity where we could do something about that. You mean by natural resources, do you mean like skills and expertise and the knowledge that are required to make wool? Well, yes, absolutely. That's almost the unseen, but the physical ones, like the land, oh, yeah. the water, the, even the oil for the polyester, you know, mm-hmm. like it's, it, everything is, we've got too many people wanting too many things too many times too often. And so there's the opportunity to tap into all that knowledge so that we can make decisions earlier on. We need designers to be able to understand where the raw material comes from, why they should know about it, and where they can make decisions to make better choices yeah. to affect the life cycle. Because yarn companies are there to sell their yarn. Garment companies are there to sell their garments. And the more, the merrier. And if we don't stop and ask for better certification, better standards in the factory, at the farm, 
it'll just be that constant vicious circle and designers will lose power and you know we'll just end up creating the basic v-necks and crewnecks and ai will take over it for us so that knowledge that you mentioned like that expertise that's dying like the people that i've spoke to that i could listen to all day speaking to these experts they're in their 70s mm. and they're retiring in fact they can't retire because companies are throwing money at them please can you come and train up my staff you know when i go to the mills and the dye houses there's so many european technicians and engineers that should be retired but because you know they work for shimaseki or they work for stoll and you know sudvole or or biela or all these big companies that they cannot train fast enough to get these experts in and to work with the technology that they've been given but they still have you know the soft skills yeah and i'm just thinking maybe a nice way to close this conversation because i think it's been sort of implicit or it's been underlying i think much of our conversation so far but is you know why did wool fall out of favor you know but you've alluded to a little bit in terms of how difficult it is to work with but is there any more color that needs to be provided to that or added to that picture, you know, why are we in this situation where technical skills and knowledge are disappearing? We're still exported as a commodity. I don't know why. I mean, I am not a farmer. I could never, I never have that skill. They're the most innovative people I've ever met. But at the end of the day, they don't have control over the cost. They never know what their product is. And so they can never make better decisions that will help everyone right further up the supply chain and i think it's just that just sharing knowledge and partnering and you've mentioned all the time which is what i love about manufacturing sharing the risk there is no sharing the risk so practically for a farmer what does that mean does that mean that like you know they could maybe adapt their practices to better suit the sort of end product that their wool will be used to make, but that that requires certain investments that nobody wants to support them with? Or is it that because they don't even know what kind of product that their wool is going to be used to make, that it's not even clear what those investments should be? Yeah, no, absolutely. And at the moment, there's a real push for wool in sportswear. And in order to get wool in sportswear, which is brilliant because it's a, a different market. And, and to me, there's a lot more opportunities that are beyond apparel, medical textiles. There's wool in NASA space shuttles now because, you know, it can because it's the best material for it. And I think we've got a lot more marketing opportunities that we haven't even scratched the surface on yet for wool. And I think we're putting all our investment into apparel. But what's an example of what might need to change at the farm level? to be able to support using wool for sportswear, just as a concrete example? They would need a certain breed, like when I mentioned the soft rolling skin merino breed. Yeah. And is that a more expensive breed? Yes, probably. They are a better animal, but it's like five years to be able to change the breed of your sheep. So it's a huge, I mean, you can't just stop for five, even 10 years. What does that mean? You need five years to change? I mean, how does this work? <laughs> you can't just go and buy a different breed of sheep? Well, you can, but you'd have to scale up. So it's very expensive. And the operations would maybe need to change to support a different breed? They would typically phase out, you know, so they would start selling their sheep. Maybe it's more more money to get it for the meat than it is for the 
place, especially when you've got to add in all your labor costs and things for shearing. But it's about 250 US dollars for a good sheep one, and you might need 3,000. So you can't, you've just got to phase it out and hope that maybe you can get one good stud and he will then create a family of other good fertile ewes and then your family will grow, but it will take years. And you've got to hope that you don't have a disaster, a flood or or all these things that are out of your control happen. And there is a lot of farmers bringing automation to their facilities and they're trying to get data and they're trying to measure nature that they can. (laughs) This uh, regenerative agriculture is another way, a positive way to do it because it's it's a healthier lifestyle and, and there's less management actually of the animals when they're in that particular environment. So there's so many decisions that a farmer can make but if he knew he was going to be making it for, or his sheep were particularly good for those merino sportswear, then great. He can tell all his neighbours about it and they can start getting five times the cost for their fleece. Five times the price. Yeah, but they have to make the shift and that's definitely not easy. So so do you think, let me ask you this, should brands and retailers buy direct from farmers? Would that solve this riddle? That's a provocative topic that I would love to see happen because when I met the farmer that planted the seed and I was just like, you're amazing and everyone needs to know about you, it's because they have the story. They have the value, the knowledge, and I know everyone in between them is valuable and they do their job, but it's servicing the product. And I think the biggest thing I want to people to observe is that disconnect with the product. And by bringing, let's say, Icebreaker in New Zealand, you know, they partner with their, there's a small percentage, like 4% of all the merino wool, 4% is in New Zealand. They don't deal with the weather, but Icebreaker partner 10-year contracts with their farmers to supply their wool. So you need new sheep? Absolutely, because I've got 10 years worth of business in the bank you need a loan from the bank, here's my contract. Yeah. So that skin in the game is proper partnership. And along the way that, you know, Ice Cream Baker can say, I need these conditions, these certifications, you know, at the end of the day, we want transparency. We're committing to that. And so to connect the buyers with the farmers, it has to be authentic. It can't just be lip service. or Through a paper trail of certificates? Yeah. Yeah. And there's also another company in the UK, it's called Sheep Inc. And they have a little QR tracer, an RFID tracer on the garment. It's very cute, great fashion, nothing tricky. They do it on a seamless garment, so nothing's wasted. Shimaseki do a whole garment machine. And that goes from corner to corner, one piece of yarn, no linking. And they will say, hey, why don't you scan and see Harry the sheep who gave you that jumper? They don't do the bit in the middle because that's really hard to trace. But sometimes that's not what consumers want. They want the pretty little sheep bouncing around. <laughs> and, and the farmer wants business. He wants people to buy his product. Neither of them can do it alone. Mm. They need this big entity in the middle, um, which is less reluctant to tell the story because it's it's not easy and it's long and it's boring and... So it'll be very interesting to see. I think Wool's opportunity is to connect with the brands, to give them the story, 
because that will be able to give them a platform. And as you said, assume some of the financial risk. Yeah. Is there anything that you want to say that you haven't had a chance to say? Yeah, wool has a bad reputation of being itchy and it's the quality. But what specifically? Is it like the kind of sheep? Is it how it's blended? Is it how the yarn is spun? What part determines whether it's itchy? More typically the the length of the fiber. Okay. So if you can imagine your long twisted fiber and all these little hairs sticking out because they're not quite long enough because you've blended lots of short ones in there, they'll be the ones that stick out. Okay, so it kind of comes back then to the classification at the beginning. Is that fair? Yeah. So if you buy a sweater that's really itchy, then probably it's been made out of sort of a lower class of wool. Is that a fair assumption? Yeah, or short. Like a lamb's wool can be itchy because it's not very, like when I told you about the micron, you think Mm -hmm. of it like a hair. The scales on it are not going to be smooth and it's Mm -hmm. going to be a little bit more textured and and so it all will affect that little prickly feeling that you that you can feel. Marianne, this has been such a pleasure. I can't quite believe that this is what I get to do today is talk to somebody who has such in-depth experience and knowledge of the wool supply chain and have you tell me how it works. It's such a, a special opportunity and I'm so grateful. So thank you. No, Kim, the pleasure is all mine. Thanks for listening to Manufacture. I've been your host, Kim von der Weert, and if you learned something new from this episode and want to support the show, come say hi to me on LinkedIn or drop me an email on kim at manufacturedpodcast.com. And of course, subscribe, rate, and review us on the podcast app you're listening to this episode on. Take a look at the episode description for all the details and stay tuned for more. 